friends, go ahead and open your Bible to John 21. That's where we'll be today as we finish our study in the book of John. We've looked at the last third or about half of John, and we've done a couple of series. Uh, we looked at, if you've been with us since the beginning of the year, we looked at what was called the Farewell Discourse, John 14 through 17. These are the last words of Jesus where he prepares them for his departure, his disciples for his departure, and the coming Holy Spirit, worldly opposition. We, we did that. Um, we've been looking at his words where he says, I'm returning to the Father, and how that's unfolded from the Garden of Gethsemane to his trial, to his death, his resurrection. And the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the implications of the resurrection and and we've seen that Jesus is the great I am, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. He is of one nature with the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And he is the king who is not dead but alive. And that resurrection power that he has is able to meet the grief of Mary the disciples in their fear, Thomas and his skepticism. This is all John 20. And now one last time he's going to appear in front of his disciples for a third time. And he appears on the Sea of Tiberias on the shore there after the disciples have gone to, well, Peter's gone back to his old trade for a moment and he has gone fishing, taken some of the disciples with him. And it's Late at night, and perhaps you've heard this story before, they're fishermen, but they can catch nothing. And so Jesus appears, and he says, well, shouldn't you just th throw the net over on the right side? Duh, right? And so th they go, okay, finally, they, they turn uh, the net over on the side, and, and they get a great catch of fish. They don't realize that it's Jesus until that moment. Peter has that aha moment. He goes, it's Jesus. He puts his cloak on. And he jumps into the water, and he goes to meet Jesus on the shore. And in verse 9, let's read right there. Let's pick up the passage. When they had got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, someone asked me, all right, preacher, what's the significance of 153? Um, here's what I've got. One of the things that I really enjoy about reading the gospel message is that there's so many little details like this that is a little tip of the hat, I think, to remind us that this is not the stuff of legend, but you would only include small little details like this. Remember how we looked at the empty tomb a couple weeks ago? Why include those details about the linens and the way things were folded up? Unless this is simply what actually happened. They happened to catch 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so they're eating breakfast with the Lord. And this morning, we are going to look at what happens next. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, what would it have been like to be on that shore after so much had happened? To be like Peter and in the shame that he had had experienced, and now he's with his Savior once again. Lord Jesus, we are here this morning, each of us with our own baggage, some of us perhaps many of us with our own shame from the past. And Lord, we want to acknowledge before we do anything else that you are the God who can take the shackles of our shame off of us and lead us into the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, let us come into the arms of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us in this moment? Restore us, commission us. Let us see what you have for us. Amen. And so they're on the shore here. And I continue to find it fascinating, friends. Maybe you've noticed there's something about Jesus and his appearance. Mary ran into this that she thinks Jesus is the gardener. They're looking at Jesus. There's something about him that is the same and yet different about his resurrected state. And he's sitting down with them after this miraculous catch. And they're eating breakfast in front of a charcoal fire that has been prepared. Now, when's the last time that Peter has been around Jesus when there's been a charcoal fire? Well, the answer is in John 18. And that was in a very sad passage where Jesus, Jesus had been betrayed by Judas. He had been taken to the high priest courtyard. Um, Peter and John had followed afterwards, and Peter was not able to get in. And so he was warning himself in front of, the text actually says in John 18, in front of a charcoal fire. And he's there, and a person comes up to him and says, we know how this goes, right? Weren't you one of the disciples? And he says, I am not. It happens a second time. I'm pretty sure you're one of his disciples. I am not, he says a second time. And then according to Mark's gospel, when asked this the third time, you really are one of his disciples, Peter says, with swearing and cursing, I do not know this man whom you speak of. And when that happened, the passage tells us that a rooster crowed three times. And so... Peter was the man that John 13, where Jesus had said, or he had said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. He fulfilled the words of Jesus when Jesus had replied to him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I have a large book on my shelf um, called The Martyr's Mirror by a man named Telemann von Brat. Maybe you've heard of this book. If you have uh, Mennonite uh, history in you, uh, this is a well-known text that um, basically recounts the stories from the first century all the way up to uh, von Brat's day in the 17th century of harrowing stories where people had stood up for their faith, looked evil in the eye, and didn't back down. And they paid the ultimate price of martyrdom for it. And I think for many of us, if you've spent some time in church, you're aware that there's people who have done things like that, heroic things. There's 
there's brothers and sisters that we have throughout the world that are dealing with uh, martyrdom is more of a reality for them than it is for us, right? And I fear that when we hear stories like that, we naturally conclude that, that we would be just as strong and courageous, bold and firm, and we would act in the same way. And I remember the first time someone had said to me, you don't know until you're placed into that moment. In fact, the church has wrestled with Christians or people who have called themselves Christians who upon encountering persecution deny Christ, they, they save their life, and then later on come back in and say, it was a weak moment. Can I be let back into the church? This is the messiness, the reality of very messy situations that the church has dealt with under persecution. And I think the truth is, we're not as confident as we think we are. Someone might respond, well, I would, I would stand up for Jesus. And I just want to ask you, Father, do you lead your family in prayer on a regular basis? Friend, does your coworker know that you go to Bethesda Church? Or is that part of your life that you keep quiet? Do you incline yourself to moral sensibilities of wherever the default position is of the culture? Or, or do you go towards what the Bible says? What I want to say to us this morning is don't say that you would lay down your life for Jesus when it's peacetime. When you are, don't say that you'd be willing to lay down your life for Jesus when it's a, a wartime moment, when you're not willing to do so in peacetime. And right now is peacetime. Despite how crazy our culture may be in certain ways, this is peace compared to what so many of our brothers and sisters in places like the Middle East, China, and elsewhere are dealing with. We're not as strong as we think we are. And that's what brash, overconfident Peter has learned the hard way. And you can imagine the humiliation that he must have encountered. This was the man who said he would go to the ends of the earth for Jesus. He then has an impulsive moment where he cuts off the ear of a guy named Malchus in the, in the garden. Five seconds later, he's denying Jesus. He's the same man who's seen the empty tomb, and now he's sitting in front of the fire with Jesus. And imagine the silence of that moment. You can hear the shore, the waves coming in and out, the fire going. And what would you say after all of that to Jesus? I'm so sorry, Lord, I wasn't faithful to the end. I fell short and I abandoned you when you needed me. I denied even knowing you. I'm so mortified and disgraced. Perhaps he's so disgraced in how he feels that he can't even get a word out. And I think this is why so many of us can relate to Peter because Peter, there's a little bit of all of, all of us, um, a little bit of Peter in all of us that we can relate. We weren't faithful when we said we would be. We weren't good on our word We were hypocrites. But this is one of the reasons why I'm so thankful, friends, for why Jesus is the word and he speaks life to those who are his. And this is what he says to Peter. He says in verse 15, and this is the main part that we want to focus on this morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. 
Isn't it significant the way that Jesus addresses Peter? He says, not Cephas, he says, Simon, son of John. There's a sense of formality in what he's saying. It'd be like if he said, Aaron David Garza, and then he asked me a question. You, I'd have a sense of, okay, I'm about to walk across the stage and receive a diploma or something, right? It, there's, a, there's a sense of seriousness to it. And so Peter ap- uh, appeals to the most sure thing that he knows of. The knowledge of Christ. Jesus, you know. You know that I love you. And then you have the pastoral commission to this person who is an unworthy denier of Christ. And he says, feed my lambs. These are not going to be Peter's lambs. Peter's sheep. They're the good shepherds. And the good shepherd has entrusted the sheep to Peter. To care to belong for what belongs to Christ. It's an incredible calling. Second round. Again. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Second time. Maybe there's something significant happening here. Second round of question, answer, commission. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so in place of the three denials that had taken place that Thursday night before Good Friday, Jesus has replaced those three denials with three words of affirmation. Yes, Lord, I love you on the Tiberian shore. He has been restored from a denier of Christ to a man who will have an incredible pastoral commission. This man who denied Christ will then be equipped and commissioned to lead the church in the very beginning. He's going to give a, that first sermon that is going to spark the movement at Pentecost that is going to be the church. And he will eventually die boldly for his faith in Christ. In fact, Jesus predicts this, and he says in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. If there's any question that this is a moment uh, where Jesus is describing his death, verse 19 makes it clear. This He said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And we keep coming back to that main theme of discipleship. Follow me. What is discipleship? Answer, Jesus tells us. If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? We're called to put the sinful old man to death and live sacrificially for Christ now as our calling to Christians is ultimately a willingness to go with him to the death. And that's what happens to Peter. We've mentioned this before. Tradition tells us that Peter ends up in the 60s, about 30 years later after this, being crucified upside down underneath the, the, the reign of Nero in Rome. 
and he is crucified upon his request so that weak-minded people would not associate him or equate him so closely with Christ. And so that man who was weak was restored, and he was restored and commissioned to live boldly even to death. That's, that's what happens. And I just think this is an incredible account, friends, for us to know that God can restore the most broken and fallen among us. So if you need evidence in your life that God is capable of restoring you or those around you who seem like, they, like they're too messed up, look no further than the story of Peter. If God can restore Peter, that is evidence that he can do that in anybody's life. God's capability does not depend on what you have done. One of the things that I encourage new Christians to do, new disciples, uh, when they have made that decision to follow Christ and, and they're, they're ready to cross that, cross that threshold of baptism, is I encourage them to write out their testimony. We've seen this over the last month. We've seen four baptisms where uh, we've had uh, new believers get right here and say, this is what the Lord has done for me. And, and one of the things that I, I love doing, this is one of the, my most favorite parts of my job, is helping people write their testimony. And if you've never done this before, I'd encourage you to do it. The simple way you can do it, you, you, you might have noticed how we've done it. You tell the story about what happened before, what happened when Christ met you, and then what life has been like afterwards. That's kind of the, the pattern, what life was like before, conversion, and then life with Christ. We, we know that life isn't always that neat and tidy, but it's good to have, have a template for how we present our story to others. However, I have a concern, and I think it has to do with the tidiness of how we tell our stories. I've told you that I grew up going to a Christian uh, Baptist school, and we would have chapel every single week. Out of curiosity, if you go to JVC, how often? Do you, one or two times a week, chapel. Once? Okay, I thought, I thought I got off the hook. I thought I had a better deal than you guys did. Anyways, we had one chapel per week, and in those, we would have testimonies. People would come and tell their stories, and maybe you've heard testimonies like this. I was doing all these terrible things. I was, I, was into, I was into this vice or that vice, this problem, I had fallen into that thing. 90% of the story, I was so bad, and then Jesus found me. The end. And you go, I want to hear what happens about afterwards, right? And so the more and more you hear stories like that, the emphasis is on all of the terrible things that you did, and it's not about what Christ did when he came into your life. And so... I think we can give the false impression that when we become Christians, when we tell our story, we should be careful that it's, we don't give that false impression that everything's flawless afterwards. And so if you're a new believer here, um, let me tell you the thing that I wish someone would have told me about three months in when I signed up to be a Christian. Don't expect for it to get easier now that you follow Christ. In fact, expect that it will get harder in certain ways but now you have the power that raised him from the dead within you. That's the big difference. But don't expect that life becomes kumbaya afterwards. We should be careful that we don't give that false impression. We will fall, but Christ will restore. 
And for those of us who have fallen down, and you realize that you began that Christian life and it got messy afterwards, and you've fallen down maybe in ways that you are so ashamed of that nobody else in this room knows, I want you to know that the shame of your past history, that does not define you in what Christ has done for you and how he's gifted you. So I want to say this. If you feel shackled this morning and that, that, those shackles of shame are keeping you from living in the gifting that God has for you to serve in his church and to live the life that he has called you to live, I want to speak to you this morning. There's a kind of person who says, I can forgive others, but I can't forgive myself. And that is, sounds on its head to be so noble, noble, right? I can forgive others, or I believe that God can forgive others, but I just can't forgive myself. Maybe you found yourself saying that at some point. But when you really think about it, what that is actually saying is that the blood of Jesus is capable of forgiving everybody else that is around me. And what Christ has done on the cross is capable of bringing restoration and redemption to everybody else around me, but it is not strong enough to take care of me. The blood of Jesus is enough for everybody else, but not enough for me. And I wanna say that if that is you, and you are living in self-hatred because of the disgrace of your past, if God can forgive Peter and restore Peter, if he can forgive and restore those who are around you, do not think for a moment that he is any less capable of doing the same thing in your life. Where sin is great, grace is greater. Where sin goes far, grace goes farther still. I have had a thought in the, sometimes this happens, that's been in the back of my head for the last four or five days. And I'm just convinced somebody needs to hear this here. Christ is capable of restoring the lost years in your life that you have so squandered. He can restore the lost years. And for some of us, that may be decades, but he can restore them. And so his love and grace and forgiveness and power is greater than the disgrace of our failure. I'd ask you, release yourself from the shackles that Christ has already freed you from, that you are placing upon yourself, and that he has already said, be free, child of God. Friend, the cross in its work is already finished. The grave is still empty. And so, so now it is your job to believe it. These realities are true. Do you believe it? And when you let Christ restore you, Paul's words can be yours in 2 Corinthians 1. Though Paul's talking about suffering that comes from, from an outside, I believe that this also applies to suffering that we, believe, that we bring on ourselves that's self-inflicted. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your story can be, I knew better and yet I still messed it up and brought shame upon myself. And yet the cross in its work was still good enough even though I knew better. And though I may have self-inflicted wounds, see what the God has, of comfort has done for me. And if he has done this for me in my failures, friend, here's the way he can do in your failures. Let God restore you and your story so that you can be there for others when they go through the same mess that you've walked through yourself. Whether it's a mess that was brought upon you or you brought on yourself. This can be your story.
Maybe your store for his glory, okay? Two things we need to address, however, in this. That feed the sheep call that Jesus gives to Peter. So out of the love that Jesus, out of the love that Peter has for Jesus, it leads to the obedience of feeding sheep. I want to address something here that people in the past have taken and twisted in this passage, and it's this. They've made this call for Peter to be so unique that it only applies to him in this way. Some have seen this and gone, this is the first commissioning of of the first Roman Catholic Pope. And I just want to say, there's nothing in the text that says this is a unique calling to Peter. In fact, the calling to make disciples is a calling for all of us. And so feeding sheep and presenting them with the truth of God's word is not something that's unique to Peter. It's something that's for all of us. It's a common call. And so while it's given to Peter here, it's, man, it's given to all of us. And so healthy things reproduce themselves. I just started uh, with a fellow brother in here d- discipling a few young men in our church. And what th- those men don't realize until right now is that by the time that discipleship process is over, you'll be equipped to go disciple others. Healthy disciples make healthy disciples. Healthy churches lead to more healthy churches. This is, this is what healthy things do. They reproduce. And so the call for us to feed the sheep that God has given to us that are his is so that those sheep would then go and make more disciples. That's what we have here. So it's not a unique call. This is a common call. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and this is what I've been wrestling through this week, and this is, this is where it gets challenging. It's this question. When it comes to restoration, is it possible to restore fallen pastors and fallen church leaders? Someone might say, why do we even have to answer a question like that? And the reason is because when you look over the last 10 years, you can go back further, but especially the last five years, There's been, unfortunately, so many that have brought shame to God's church because of their actions. And I know that there's many of us here that you supplement not just the the discipleship that you receive here on Sunday morning or through various avenues at Bethesda, but you also read books and podcasts and you get other sources. So I want to take just a moment and say a few things to you so that you would know how to be able to best filter the resources that you take in for the sake of your discipleship. Another thing too, we had Bethesda desire that the current leaders would not be the leaders forever, uh, but that there would be more leaders that would come after us and come around us. And so we have to address this question of restoring leaders as we talk about leaders that are built up within our own house, okay? And so perhaps I'm hitting a a nerve for some of us. This is a, a personal one for me. And it's not just because I'm a pastor, this question of fallen leaders, but because I have been on the receiving end myself of having taken in spiritual formation of those who have fallen. Last week I was in San Diego and I was talking to a, a, uh, by the way, the weather's way better there than it is here. (laughs) 
Um, it was 60, 70. It was awesome on the beach. And it's snowing when I come back here. Um, but it was great. And we were there for a new pastor's orientation. If you don't know, we're a part of a denominational family called uh, the United States Mennonite Brethren, USMB. You notice we don't wear bonnets, so it's, it's like Mennonite light. That's kind of how we, how we do it here. And so anyways, I'm with some of these brothers for a new pastor's orientation, and I'm, and I'm meeting, networking, all of that. And I talked to one guy who I know has been dealing with some, some challenges in his ministry, and we began to share about how for both of us in our own way, there, there is something just profound about learning from, from those who end up having a fall, where you receive spiritual formation, and then that brick that that person gave you for you to build up your theology and your beliefs and all of that, he ends up falling and go, what do I do with this brick? Do, can I keep it or do I have to jettison that? You wrestled with something like this? I never took that class on or read that book on how to deal with that kind of disappointment. And so maybe you can relate on some level. So how do we navigate this question? Can God restore someone to ministry? I'm gonna give you four things. First, yes, God can restore anyone to ministry no matter what they've done. While there is a standard for elders, for deacons, that are called to that high standard, particularly pastors who are called to live above reproach, when people in my profession Christian leaders have a fall. Don't think that God is only capable of restoring everybody else except for, except for pastors who fall. Everyone means everyone. God can restore all people. And he can restore them in such a way where they can sing of the mercies that he has given them despite what they have done. Think about David for just a moment in Psalm 51. David has sinned with Bathsheba, and when he sinned with Bathsheba, he repents before the Lord. But what happens halfway through the Psalm 51? He says, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Lord, I repent. Restore me so I can teach others. God can restore anyone to ministry, no matter what they've done. However, Restoration to Christian ministry doesn't necessarily mean restoration to the prior position that you were in. You understand what I'm saying here? Restoration to ministry doesn't mean you're elevated to the same place that you were before. For example, God can restore you to ministry, but if you've committed a crime, your ministry might look very different going forward. And that ministry might mean that you're doing it and feeding God's sheep from the vantage point of being inside the prison as opposed to being outside of those prison walls. God can restore anybody, but it might look different going forward. And this is where wisdom is called for. The church has to ask important questions, for example. Will putting this position in, a, in this person in this position again set them up for failure that they haven't moved past? That's the question. For someone who may have fallen in a significant way. We have to prioritize the sheep over gifting. The well-being of the sheep is more important, friend, than the charismatic gifting of a gifted leader. That's the second thing. But what about those who are, is it possible for those to be restored to a 
pastoral position or an elder position if they've fallen. I think this leads to the next thing. You have to look for the fruit, the third thing. True restoration to ministry requires authentic repentance. There is a difference between grief for being caught and godly grief that leads to the fruit of repentance. Okay? Godly grief that leads to the fruit of repentance. I'd ask you to evaluate your resources for discipleship that you have, whether it's podcasts, sermons, books, whatever, and look to that person and go, do they live a life where, they're in con- where they are living in humility and repentance or in arrogance and a domineering life? One of the things that I have found for me, having witnessed how someone can be one way and then, and then be totally different behind the scenes, is I go to churches and I go, I wonder how he is to his staff. Uh, I wonder how he is behind the scenes. My desire for us is that we would be a discerning people that when we see someone who, who is seeking to be restored into ministry, and this isn't just pastors, remember, this is elders, this is deacons, this is anyone who's called to church leadership, is that we would look for authentic repentance. But also, and this is the last thing, Restoration to church ministry equals meeting the standard of biblical qualifications that come out of 1 Timothy 3. Don't take John 21 and then ignore 1 Timothy 3. Some people will look at this passage that we've been looking at this morning of John 21 and see how Jesus restores Peter and will go, well, he had a fall, put him back in the game. Let's go real quick. And there's no consideration about the fact that you are called as a church leader to live above reproach. And so the question is, how long until you can tell that someone is living above reproach? One author has put it this way, the challenge of this, that we would not be too quick to prioritize gifting over character. He says, you cannot tell if someone is a good manager of a household the first time you meet him. You see the witness of his family life over time similarly When a guy cheats on his wife, you don't determine he's a good family man soon after the revelation. It will take more time, given the offense, to see him walk in repentance, to gain that reputation back. It is not an immediate thing for a pastor disqualified for a long pattern of verbal abuse or coarse jesting to gain a reputation. The gentle, peaceful man takes time. It is probably less still for a pastor disqualified for a pattern of alcohol addiction or sexual immorality to gain a reputation as a sober-minded or a one-woman man. You can hear those qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 there. So if I can sum up, friends, can God restore anybody? Yes. Does it necessarily mean that they're put in the same position that they were in before? That's where wisdom comes in. Not necessarily, but in cases where there is, there is true and genuine repentance and over as much time is needed for a life of being above reproach to be demonstrated so that the church can witness that, there are cases where a person can be restored to ministry. And that person's life at that point becomes a testimony not of him, but what of Christ has done despite that person. It shows the grace and the goodness of God. I have to acknowledge to you, I actually don't like talking about this too much. But what I do know is that I dislike even more the problems that I see in modern evangelicalism with the celebrity culture of pastors 
that prioritize results over character. Disqualifying sin is ignored. Those kinds of things. Especially in the thought leaders that we might really like. Everyone has clay feet, including me, including you, including that person that you really like to listen to. And so when we see leaders in our culture or around us in our context fall, let's be the kind of people that seek and pray for genuine restoration. That's marked by repentance and a desire to live above reproach. This happened in Peter's life. God can do it in our life. I can do it for all those around us when we fall down. Okay? So have this wisdom when we approach people when they fall. Peter turns to Jesus, and he, it seems they've moved from one point to being in front of the charcoal fire, and they've started to walk down the shore, and he looks back and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, and he makes a comment in verse 20, and this is where we'll land here. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad amongst the brothers that this disciple was not to die. And yet Christ did not say to him that he was not to die, not to die. But if it is my will that he remain alive until I come, what is that to you? And so Peter looks at the beloved disciple and says, well, so I'm going to die eventually if I follow you. What about him? Just curious. What about him? And Jesus says in the kindest possible way, none of your business, none of your business. If I want him to never die, that's my prerogative. That's what he says. Friend, the sin of comparison is so crippling, and we are all prone to do it. It comes in so many forms. God, why do they get to have life easy and my life is so difficult? Why don't they have to deal with the same health problems that I do? Why did they get the family that, I, that they have and I didn't get what I deserve? I prayed, Lord, for, that you would give me the spouse that I wanted. I prayed that you would give me these things. I did all the right things and they got it and I didn't. Why did I have to go through that thing? Why did that door open up for them but it didn't open up for me? Friends, I want us to be the kind of church that doesn't live in the sin of comparison that leads to jealousy and and crippling bitterness. God has ordained each of our journeys, and each of them are uniquely different. And so the most loving thing that he can say to Peter and to us is, stop it. And so, friends, you run your race. You run your race. You don't run somebody else's race. He has given you what you need to run your race. Everything that he has for you is already there by the power of his Holy Spirit. Peter, I will take care of you, and you let me worry about the beloved disciple. And who is this beloved disciple? Well, verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself 
could not contain the books that would be written. And so like an actor who breaks the fourth wall and looks at the audience and begins speaking to them, the narrator of this entire gospel looks up at us and he says, it is I, the beloved disciple. I was the one who lay close to Jesus at the Lord's Supper. I was the one who witnessed the death of Christ. I was there at the empty tomb. I am qualified to be a witness and tell you about these things, reader, so that you would believe in Christ, and by believing, you would have a life in his name. And so believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and all that he did, that word, no words of man can fully describe, or is there enough to describe what he did. Believe that he is everything that he said he was. Believe in his promises. Believe in his resurrection power. Believe in his ability to restore Believe his ability to help you and I to run our race and believe the way, the truth, and the life. Believe in him from this famous gospel that we have looked at so far this year, who has returned to the Father, has made a home for us, and will come again. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.